Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. All right. Hello. Welcome, everyone, to Star Trek from the Holodeck. This is the Discovery Edition, and I'm your host, Michael Flores. If you're new to our show, we cover a wide variety of Star Trek content. And you can find our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search from the holodeck and give us a review and rating on iTunes as it does help our show grow. It triggers algorithms that allow more people to see our show. We are charting in various countries as well as the United States. Thanks to people sharing our show via social media. But uh, help us out on iTunes. That's where it really counts for us. All right, in the studio today with me is Ensign David Sabal. Hello. How's it going, everybody? How are you, David? Doing good. Uh, pretty much the channels are clear right now, Captain. Thank you. I like when the channels are clear. <laughs> Any uh, gravitational distortions gravitational threatening distortion. to make you cry? Not, not, No, not yet. Yeah. Not yet. <laughs> All right, well. Just wait till they basically make it the power of a child. Oh, <laughs> well, I hate to break it to you guys. Uh, we just uh, followed up on a lead. and We found out that Sakal is also responsible for the gravitational <laughs> distortion. <laughs> that little shit. Also, we must all kill him now. <laughs> Gladly. <laughs> Set phasers to full effect and disintegrate his ass, please. Find out Sakal is like the big bad villain in the end. <laughs> that actually might be interesting. All right. So we've got some things to discuss for today's discussion. We will be breaking down, obviously, episode two of season four titled Anomaly. Saru returns to help the USS Discovery uncover the mystery of an unusually destructive new force as Burnham leads the crew. She must also find a way to help book cope with an unimaginable loss. That synapsis reads like a how-to write a melodrama, melodrama in five easy does, steps. doesn't it? And yeah. unfortunately, that's what this is, this episode. It's a melodrama. Yeah, I, I will admit, this episode felt a little wonky. Uh, the story, the little there was itself, was fine. So narratively speaking, structurally, it fell off. And we'll get into that type of stuff toward the end of the discussion but first, we want to break down all the positives. The, the strategy or concept behind the episode was a solid idea using the emotional ramifications and the shock that followed with the destruction of Quajon as the foundation of the story. That yes. works. You know, book being that tangible writing device to keep the narrative consistent or i should say to keep narrative continuity in both emotion and structure in a funny way his character was the tether he was the emotional tether of like the entire episode absolutely it was a solid plan it allowed the writers to deal with the repercussions of the tragedy while 
using this aspect as a way to keep Burnham's issues within the foreground. If you remember the first episode of the season, it laid down the groundwork for what we can expect from her story, from Burnham's story, based on what the president of the Federation shared. She will be continually faced with emotionally compromising situations most of the season. That would make perfect sense, as is the case with this episode. You know, situations that warrant hard decisions, Burnham will be tested all season with no-win situations, which is what this episode did as well. Yes. They forced Burnham to make a very hard decision that, without a doubt, emotionally compromises her as a captain. So we're going to see a lot of those types of things. That's the reason why they include an element like that at the start of the season so that it could set the groundwork for what to expect. And well, hopefully let's hope they are doing that as a writer myself. That's what I would do. Yeah. As we know, many times writers of TV shows do things by accident. (laughs) They're not supposed to, but sometimes they do things by accident and there really is no connection. And using this theme of one of the most iconic Star Trek philosophical ideas, which is the no win situation, the, you know, putting a character in that type of situation. Mm -hmm. This is what we all wanted to see out of Burnham because she's taking that chair now. Yeah. She's becoming the captain. So she's got to start acting like it. Yeah. The easiest way to do that. You put them in the, the situation that we all feel that every single captain has to be measured with which is the the no-win solution. Yeah. If they build, think about that, if they build an entire season around the concept of the Kobayashi Maru. Kobayashi Maru. That is awesome. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. And that it, it's, a easy, it's an easy way of really building up Burnham at this point because yeah. that's what they got to do. Well, not just building her up, but tackling the issues that are very apparent to everyone. The, the non-captain material. Burnham honestly shouldn't be captain. If you look at the things that she has done, <laughs> yeah. she shouldn't be captain. She shouldn't be captain. And in order to justify her being in that captaincy, they are going to go through these motions all throughout season four. That, that is not a mistake. So yeah. hopefully they do keep that consistency there. Otherwise, the keen viewer or the critic will question why you start the season in such a way. Oh, yeah. And it makes sense in this episode bringing back a character like Saru to be, you know, essentially he's the the the, the, the number one. Even though he doesn't have that rank, he they bring him in here so that he can be used as that foil of captainship towards Burnham because we look at Saru and Saru is the one that basically we all, every single Star Trek fan of discovery basically says he's the one that needs to be captain. We want him to be captain. We don't want Burnham to be captain because she, she's not captain material. Okay. Take the one guy, the one character that is captain material, use him as the foil to Burnham who her story at this narrative throughout this season should be what does it, what, what will it take for Burnham to truly become captain? Yeah. That being said, this episode did connect to the previous elements from last episode in that regard. Absolutely did. And you're right about bringing Saru in. That is the next logical step in this strategy to flesh out Burnham's captaincy. 
that's why having Book at the center of this episode was a good decision to start testing Burnham's captaincy. Captaincy. And by bringing Saru in, as you mentioned, as a confidant, it helped Burnham reconcile some hard decisions. Uh, Saru's return to Discovery is justified from a writing standpoint because that's how they did it. If they would have just brought Saru back after the ridiculousness of him leaving because of Sukal. Listen, that was hard to swallow as I, have, as I have mentioned numerous times, but now if they backtrack and bring him back, you're like, okay, this, like, what, what are you doing? Is this musical fucking chairs? So the fact that they use Saru in that way, it makes, it justifies from a writing viewpoint. It justifies bringing this character back into the series and essentially into the, same role that he has been playing for numerous seasons now and to have him be that foil you're absolutely right it works to it works in the way of burnham's story it goes back to that what what, what did he say his word trusted eyes yes effectively you know this effectively brought Giorgio's legacy back into the series into the series and when saru invokes Giorgio's mentorship it builds on both saru's and burnham's characterization this is a shared past that ended in tragedy tragedy and it forged both of them into the leaders they are today that's what i loved about that scene with them discussing about the telescope it was the best scene of the episode it's the best thing because it's a callback to what me and you started Discovery is like Burnham needs almost like that trifecta of brilliance. And the original trifecta of brilliance was Saru. From our first season From discussion. the first season. Yeah. Was Saru. Sarek. Uh, Sarek and Giorgio. Yeah. That was her trifecta. And like the bringing back the, through the, the, those characters, meaning let's just let's explain to our new listeners what you mean by that, by this trifecta of brilliance. That is that's what we called it, right? Yep. It basically helps you infer necessary information about your main character. Yes. Which is Burnham. Which is Burnham. And like bringing that back to the forefront now sets the stage for what I felt was the narrative that I was hoping for, which is the whole Burnham has to earn this captainship. She just cannot be just dropped in here and everyone, you know, bows down to her and says, Oh, Burnham's right with everything. No. Yeah. Burnham has to earn that seat. And during that scene, I truly felt like this is, they truly are going to go that route. Yeah, because, you know, Giorgio is always going to be an important part of Burnham and Saru's legacy. So, or I should say their characterization and their progression as characters. Yeah. So bringing Giorgio's legacy back in, reminding the audience what this character meant and did for these characters, it keeps them, Saru and Burnham, connected on a personal level and it helps us understand Numerous things that's going on in their minds. And we, uh, I don't know about you, but like during that scene, it really felt like Saru was really hitting the fact that he is focusing on Georgiou, uh, Georgiou Prime. George Jew. Who's George Jew? George Jew. I just could not speak there. I had a stroke. But 
Uh, I know you. He was George Jew. <laughs> George Jew. <laughs> but is that a Jewish remake of George of the Jungle? <laughs> George of the Jungle. But Giorgio Prime. She, that's the one he's focusing on. Yeah. Not not the you know mirror universe. Oh, no, I would be focusing on her. Yeah, I mean, all of us would. But, like, in regards to Burnham's growth, yeah. it's Giorgio Prime that course, basically yeah. is has affected her history. Yeah, at least as a captain. As a captain, yeah. Yeah, because the Giorgio from the Mirrorverse did something completely different for Burnham and the yes. way of character development. They're two very, that's why I love what they did with those characters, because they're two very different characters that do two very different things for our characters, for our, our lead, Burnham. Yeah. Now, I had assumed Saru would be captain of the new USS Voyager, as I had talked about during our last discussion. But he was actually offered, it was kind of close, he was offered another starship, which he turned down to be Burnham's number one. But I think we can assume, based on a few lines of dialogue, that it's temporary due to the immediate threat, because he still holds the rank of captain. Yes, he does. You can't have two captains. You can't have two captains. What type of fuckery is this? <laughs> and I'll be completely honest, this shit irritates me. It just adds it adds to the convoluted hierarchical arrangements of the discovery. A captain can be a first officer and an ensign, Tilly, Tilly. can be a first officer. Like, yep. It it just doesn't quite compute with everything we've seen throughout the years of Star Trek. We know that a first officer position does tend to be based on the captain's prerogative. For example, T'Pol yes. was part of the Vulcan Science Academy, right? Mm-hmm. But she became the first officer of the Enterprise because Archer insisted. But because the series has never had any clear succession of leadership, perhaps that's why it bothers me. It's always been all over the place. And I understand. Did you me, get what I'm saying? Yeah, because like the thing that I've I've only used as a blanket for for comfort for this I don't want to call it a problem in discovery. Yeah. Is the fact that I get that they're trying to push that the discovery crew, the entire team is more family than a bridge crew. They're more family. And I get that. I really do. But I'm with you is like we can you can still have that family feeling but still have that hierarchy of captainship and lieutenants and make that stuff matter because, because we it saw does, that, because it doesn't matter at this point yeah because it doesn't matter at this point and it's like we saw them do we saw them do it with voyager voyager was it was it was a family environment with the crew however they still understood the hierarchy they still understood you know janeway was the captain and seven of nine was more or less kind of like an advisor role, but you, you never saw them like mix and muddle the lieutenant ship and the first officer ship and everything like what they do in discovery. Now the only, I guess the justification for this is that this is written. It's not written like a movie because it's not in, in terms of uh, structure. It's not, but it is more like a movie where in the fact that they or in the way that they're tackling a big issue it's not episodic it's serial so you're getting one giant story so the fact that you can bring a captain like saru and he's gonna act as first officer for discovery for this immediate threat then that's fine but the because this is a series 
and we've never had uh, a lasting hierarchy on board discovery it just feels more like confusion and they don't care it's, (laughs) it's just it's just weird because we've seen it before captain kirk was an admiral and ended up being in charge of the enterprise but there was reasons why it it was because of um an exercise, uh, an, an outside issue, issue that made him have to take control of the starship. Yeah. We've seen it numerous times. So this isn't a new thing, this but it's a also thing. a one-time thing in a movie. So in that way, if you want to look at it like that, that this is just temporary, a captain being a first officer on board Discovery because of this distortion, this gravitational distortion, and the potential ramifications the universal shattering ramifications then then i i i I assume i can understand possibly justifying that but after this we just gotta we gotta get on track we gotta get on track especially since the thing that i liked from last episode but also in hindsight thinking about it just makes that idea more confusing is you took the entire bridge crew and basically up their rank to lieutenant all of them, all of them, all at once. So it's like, Lieutenant, yes, yes. they all say yes at yeah, once. All at oh once. no, no, I, I mean, uh, you, Lieutenant. And I'm like, going, okay, see, this is the problem. <laughs> I like the fact that we acknowledge that. Hey, these guys earned their earned their rank from last season. Fantastic. Okay. However, then you run into the problem that basically, like, everyone's a lieutenant. Yeah. No one's no one is like a ensign. At least give me an ensign. Look at they even left poor ensign Kim an ensign for seven years because exactly. they, they had no room for growth. But on Discovery, everyone can get promoted. Everyone can get promoted. Yeah. It's it's strange. And it's, it's we're just being nitpicky. We're being silly. It's not a big deal. It doesn't it doesn't break anything. I'm all about the writing aspect, but it does just feel kind of convoluted. It does. Perhaps this is just a way. To put a pin in the Saru situation for now when it comes to being captain, because perhaps maybe by the end of the season, we will see him become the captain of the USS Voyager. That could still happen. That could still happen. And then you could actually maybe even take Saru, take some of the Discovery crew with him and the other. Maybe Sue Paul can be his first officer. <laughs> I think that would that, that would give you an aneurysm in the end, seeing Sukal standing next to him like a first officer dressed up. I would hunt down Kurtzman. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So keeping with book as the foundation of the episode, they were able to close out some lingering issues that Stamets had from last season. And I like what they did with Stamets this episode. It was yeah. a way to tie up some of the loose ends from last season and it smooths out the tensions between the crew, which shouldn't exist in Star Trek. That's something that I've seen a lot of people complain about. seems like they're always bickering. They're always, they're always fighting, especially the, with the way last season ended with Burnham threatening to, you know, eject Stamets out of airlock. Listen, I understood. I understand why she did it. However, you're also creating these situations that now become antagonistic and you have disgruntlement on board the ship. And that's not really a part of Star Trek. The whole idea of Star Trek is that everyone, at least when it comes to the Federation Starfleet, it's about peace. Everyone gets along that there aren't these these petty, catty squabbles. Yes. So by having a scene like that with Book, it helps smooth it out without having to dwell on it or not just forgetting like it 
never happened, which that would have irked me, especially yeah. with how the episode ended, or I should say the season ended last year with Stamets obviously unhappy that Burnham became captain. If you remember that scene, he, yeah. he had, he a, was visibly he, not happy. Yeah. So the, the fact that they had him talk issues out with the book and also the joke he made about being ejected out the airlock, I thought was fucking perfect. Oh, I thought that was good. It addressed the situation, and now we can move on. Yeah, and, and you know, I of if some of our listeners remember, I was the one that basically said I want to see Stamets turn villain. At oh this come point. on! But like now after this. That's gone because at least can't have him turn it at least at least they acknowledged it. They acknowledged that moment and having Stamets kind of basically go, okay, and d- treat it like a joke that fits for his character. And also, when you see how Colbert deals with him, it also makes sense. He's the voice of reason. He's the yeah. one that tells Stamets to be like, dude, calm down. Yes. Wait. And I love the use of Colbert. I have never been a fan of the Culber and Stamets relationship. I just feel like there's no chemistry between the two of them. I've never been a fan of it. I just like, can we just end this? I like, I like Culber on his own and I'm okay with Stamets on his own, but the two of them together, it just doesn't work for me. It doesn't work. However, in this episode, we finally had a moment that felt natural and real between the two of them. It wasn't just some like, superficial contrived love affair sappy moment yeah it was a real moment between two people who are obviously intimate who understand each other they know the ins and outs and they had a conversation that helped smooth over certain you know personality issues and i like the fact that they addressed that scene with stamets because making making Stamets personality this way makes sense now. You know, like, okay, we all understand that he's a douchebag, but that's that's who he is. Yeah, he's a little he's a and, little, and the whole the whole story in itself that I really liked was about like people dealing with grief. And that's how Stamets deals with, you know, grief like moments. Yeah. And it makes sense to actually, you know, with Book having him use that as them using that foil between him and Stamets was actually a work of genius because like it'd be so melodramatic if everyone acted the same way in regards of grief and getting to see one spectrum of grief teamed up with another spectrum of grief made it feel more natural to me. And it also showed maturity Maturity. from Stamets because that's something Stamets has lacked since, oh, absolutely. since the first season, he had no professionalism. You remember the way he looked at the Captain Lorca? I, I remember that bothered me in the third episode. <laughs> he was just so disrespectful and questioned everything Lorca did. Yeah, you you wanted to see Lorca just smack him. I would have. <laughs> I'm sure Lorca wanted to put him in the agonizing booth or the agonizer booth. Agonizer <laughs> booth. That's right, because that was Mirror Lorca. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So it was nice to see this character actually progress as a person. You can see that the writers are looking to soften some of his issues. And I don't think they're doing it because any other reason than to show progress. Uh, this person's learning. And I feel like a lot of that process of, of him learning to be a better person is because of his relationship with Adira Gray 
and the fact that he has Colbert in his corner. Yes. That's the reason why he is becoming different. And dude, the use of Colbert this season, I'm really excited about because they've, they've turned him into essentially the counselor of the entire crew. And I think that's a perfect, that is a perfect mold for Colbert. Well, he's very empathic to begin with. So to have him fill in that role actually does make sense. I I hate to say it, you know, comparing him to Deanna Troy, who is an empath? Who's a, who is an empath? <laughs> Colbert's a better counselor than Troy. Deanna Troy's blank stare always got to me. She's yeah, because all, she'll just stare at you. <laughs> like, we're trying to read my mind. <laughs> Be a real doctor. Use textbooks to figure out what I'm trying to say. Don't actually cheat. <laughs> or, or the fact that basically, even like when she deals with like someone like Barkley, it always bothered me because of it going, Deanna, you don't want to see what's in his brain. Oh, she senses his horniness. <laughs> you know, I'm sensing, so I'm sensing gratitude and horniness. horniness. <laughs> and I'm like, don't give that blank stare at him as he's telling you his problem. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's talk about Adira and Gray. Uh, they were brought to the foreground of this episode as well. Uh, Gray is getting a synthetic body, a golem body like Picard. Oh, God. David, I called this. If you remember, I said it as yes, a fucking joke last season. I it said, was a joke, I Mike. said, Gray is going to get a golem body. And look what they fucking did. <laughs> now, now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I will give them kudos for okay. this scene. Go ahead. Because at least they tried to explain the whole golem aspect. They didn't basically say, this is a power of a imagination. Right. No, don't do that. At least they tried to make it believable to me, especially when they brought up the fact that, hey, this synth technology is a very experimental. There not have been many success rates. The moment they said synth body, I knew, I knew it was coming next. I knew they were going to say Picard. I know they were, yeah. I knew it. I hated it, but I'm like going, yeah. this is something that has to be said. Now, if people haven't listened to our Picard discussions because <laughs> you're a new listener, that was the moment that we lost our shit. <laughs> yes, it, yes, it was. It was. <laughs> it was and listen to those discussions. I'm not yes. going to get into it. Because we don't want to be angry for this episode because this episode does not deserve any No, anger. no, not at all. So, yes, Colbert mentioned Picard. And he also mentioned Alton Sung. Yeah, that's right. The the conical <laughs> anomaly that makes no sense. Uh, uh, wait, wait, wait. Just, that's Picard for you. Yeah, yeah. We're just going to introduce characters that make no sense. And, and you know but what? Okay. Anyways, I give them props. I give them props for sticking to their guns, but not overly going into it. Because if they went overly into it, then it would be like they're making an excuse for Picard. Well, f- to me, they handled this whole synth body a bit better yeah. Now, I don't want to say to be fair to the Picard writers, fuck that. They should know their story. But apparently, if you listen to a couple of interviews, no one knew for what was sure going on. what they were going to do. Yes. In fact, Patrick Stewart, there was a rumor. I want to say, I don't think it's a rumor. I think he actually said it in an interview. He wasn't even aware what they were going to do at the end. He had no, in fact, I believe he said it was a surprise that. He had died. He had died. Yeah. And that they were going to put him into this body. So that being said, they didn't have a lot of room to explain and make it 
makes sense in a philosophical sense for the purposes of the first season of Picard. Yes. Whereas with this aspect here, using elements from Picard, they do make it work a bit better. When Colbert said the process was attempted a number of times after Dr. Soong first used it on a Starfleet Admiral named Picard. I like that they said that they eventually dropped the process because it didn't work. It It had a low rate of success. Despite using this technology, the writers thankfully closed the possibility for this being the biggest writing hack in all of history. Yeah. It basically doesn't work. The success rate is low based on what Colbert said. It had to do with the transference of human consciousness And I like this explanation, Dave, for a couple reasons, because it aligns with other post-human theories pertaining to the transfer of human consciousness to either an artificial body or a computer. Many theorists believe there would be a type of cognitive dissonance that would basically conflict with the transfer. So this low success rate, if they choose to explain it down the road, yes, could easily be explained by way of real world science. Yeah. And also the fact that the fact that gray is a trill that helps because remember for the trills, it makes sense that their consciousness would be I don't want to use the word stronger than a human consciousness so that because they're used to having their memories transferred from host to host. Our consciousness is very different than a memory. Exactly. And and that's David. We do need some explanation on that. We do. I really wish they talk and thoroughly explain how and why Gray's consciousness has lingered in this way because Trill's they don't really live on the way the Trill species was set up in TNG and D space nine. They don't live on. They do die. Yes. Their memories are a part of a symbiote. A symbiote. So the symbiote or symbiote holds the memories of past hosts so that when the next host comes, they have all those memories. They're privy to lives before but it doesn't mean they are alive now there is a ritual that we discussed last season that was introduced in star trek d space nine a trill ritual called i believe it's called the Zeontara yeah ritual and that allows the memories to manifest as a consciousness as a consciousness and by doing that the current host can commune with the past lives yes It's only for a temporary time, but it can be done. So if they connect this ritual to Gray's ability to survive or their consciousness to survive, then by all means, I'm I'm fine with that. But they do have to explain it. And it made me a little nervous that we're just going to gloss over it because the way they just said, hey, we're going to transfer your consciousness over to a synth body. Exactly. It felt like we... We're not getting actual explanation. And and uh, from the from the dialogue, I'm kind of interested to see if they continue it on, especially since Gray mentions, you know, that they are really excited to becoming a host or a guardian again. But 
you know, if her, if their consciousness is put into a synth body, technically they're not true anymore. They're a synth. Yeah. So they can't go through the process well, of Dave, actually becoming a host. You're getting into areas of the metaphysical and yeah. <laughs> the philosophical. And, and like, that's what, the thing. What that's makes what makes a person me... a person is a person. Let's put this in real life terms. Okay. For example, let's say your consciousness as a Filipino male was stored and they put you into a white person's body. <laughs> you would still be Filipino. Filipino. But the vessel that you're in is a white male with all the privilege that comes with being white. (laughs) So stupid. My point is, if we had intellectual writers writing this show, I could see that they could really run with this and use those aspects to really make Grey Story pop. Yes. I don't know if we're going to get those aspects because... I got the very low hanging fruit transgender um, allegory that that they use in this episode when Gray said my transitioning that they were purposely creating a bit of an allegory for trans individuals in the process of becoming who you want to be as opposed to who you were born as. That's the reason why you had the scene with Colbert erasing the mole because gray had said well now i have a chance to be in the body that i feel like i should be in essentially right yeah i'm paraphrasing but that was the point and listen that that's fine i I understand the message and i'm not against that message at all actually but i just wish that they would say something about the trans experience as opposed to hey look this is a trans allegory guys exactly i want them to say something about it I feel like a lot of Discovery, and this is why people complain about the wokeness of Star Trek Discovery, which I hate that word, and I don't subscribe to that line of thinking, and I don't feel like Discovery is woke, but this is why people who watch things superficially tend to describe Discovery and the Kurtzman era as woke, because they just do things for the purpose of inclusion without any relevance, without any substance. And that makes for just shitty writing, period. It's just about inclusion. Why don't you say something about being trans, about the experience, without obviously stepping into real-world social identity politics that would feel very weird in the world of Star Trek? But there are smart ways. And what I mean by that is, look at Captain Sisko in... Star Trek Deep Space Nine. What if they just found little moments to create allegories to racism as a black captain? But they never actually said anything. They just said, hey, look, inclusion. He's black and we're doing this for the purposes of inclusion. Well, that's fine that you're including and you're showing the inclusivity of Star Trek by casting a black man. But what's the point? What are you trying to say? What are you trying to say? What's the substance that comes with being inclusive? Well, if you look at D Space Nine, the purpose of, of, of Cisco being cast wasn't because he was black and just for inclusion. There was a message behind every single moment that Cisco was with his son. Exactly. Avery Brooks yes. made a point to say, listen, I don't want to just be a, a box that you tick for inclusion. I want to say something about the black experience. Exactly. I want to say something about being a black father raising 
a black son. And he said there isn't a lot of representation in the 90s of no. positive images of black men, black males as as good fathers. So what I want is I want those types of stories written from my character. I want to have moments throughout every season where I have a good relationship with my son. That's that's not just inclusion. That's saying something. That's exactly. giving us substance. And I feel like with with Star Trek Discovery, it's just inclusivity for inclusivity's sake rather than trying to say something about it. And if you think about if you think about it because of that, because of that, we, uh, you know, talking about another captain that we see as a as a parental figure, like in Janeway, you can make the argument because of the fact that how they uh, how they handled Cisco and that writing and making it more about than just that he's a black man, he's a better parent than any of the other captains. Like if you look at the, his relationship with his son compared to Janeway treating her crew, Picard treating his crew. Kirk treating his crew. He's the better, he's a better like parental figure. And going to, since you bring up Janeway, look at Janeway as another comparison. It wasn't about just saying, Hey, this is the first female captain. It was actually about breaking down the barriers of the patriarchy. Her ship was the epitome of a matriarch. Yes. That's, what her point was in the show. It was about breaking down those barriers. That's what they were saying in every single episode. How many times did she have to face, especially early on, the Kazon, which were very misogynistic, didn't even want to speak to a woman in control. In fact, there were other alien species I believe they encountered where they would look at her and say, you can't possibly be the one in charge of this ship. There was intent behind the casting. And the inclusion of a woman captain. It wasn't just about, hey, inclusion, wink, wink, give us a pat on the back for being so progressive. Yes. Be progressive and say something intelligent about it that works in the context of your story and the world of Star Trek. And I'm hoping they're doing this with the inclusion of Grey yes. and Adira. Adira being non-binary and, of course, or I should say the actor that plays Adira being non-binary and the actor that plays Gray, Gray. being a, a trans individual. Mm -hmm. If they were to take that and actually say something about it in a very intellectual way that works within the confines of Star Trek, then we have a win here. And I'm hoping they do this because they have the aspect of the consciousness yes. and the trill. There is something they can truly say about identity and what actually makes a person a person. Is it the body they are born in or is it their consciousness? And that is something they can do with this scenario. Oh, yeah. And you can tie it in to make it even better. The best part of this episode was Tilly's little existential meltdown slash crisis that she had where she essentially questioned the purpose of everything. When she talked to Saru about everything being over in a blink of an eye. That is very much on par. Number one with classic Star Trek. The, you're delving into the philosophical. Yes. She's asking very real questions. These are the types of questions anyone would ask after everything they've been through. The. Everything. What's the point of it all? We, we, we traveled a thousand years into the future to save humanity only to confront 
a gravitational distortion that can annihilate people at a whim, an entire planet, an entire yeah. universe, theoretically, at a whim. So how does Tilly reconcile existence and death and purpose? If they use this as her character arc, then we have a winner. Yes. And if they use Gray as a foil, then his existence as a type of post-human should exacerbate Tilly's dilemma. Suddenly we have two characters working together to essentially say the same thing about purpose, identity, all falling into the philosophical aspects of existentialism. And that's how you write a true Star Trek narrative. You have to make all your, all your narratives kind of tie in really nicely with your theme. And if that's their theme, the idea of self-consciousness for, for a theme throughout the entire season, then using those two would be fantastic. I, I just hate to see... What's, what's it called when you leave something on the table? Well, because that's my problem with Discovery since day one. They have the they ingredients. Leave, they, yeah. They have the ingredients for some fantastic things. They and leave they, profit on the table. Yes. <laughs> Which you, would, if you were a part of Ferenginar, you would fail. You, you never leave profits on the table. Exactly. Also, by the way, seeing a Captain Ferengi brought a smile to my face. Well, <laughs> let's get back to that in a second because I have a couple of things to say about that. Don't let me forget. It's actually an important point. But what was I saying? I forgot now. You're, we were talking about basically the fact that they're able to take identity, this identity type of story narrative and tie it with the two characters. Okay. Yes. So if, if they were doing that and I hope they do, because there's a lot of potential here. Yeah. You can definitely bring Star Trek discovery back to the roots of Star Trek, which is something they've been missing since day one. There, there are no notes of the philosophical and discovery. None. Can't even point to one. I, I can say maybe in a specific episode, there might've been a moment. If they were to do this and create this entire idea with the distortion and the distortion is simply a way to get our characters to actually talk about the purpose of life. Holy shit. Then it would make, uh, do you realize it would make complete sense why this crew, the Discovery crew, constantly, every single season has to have a world-defining, you know, we have to save the universe type of storyline. Makes sense. And think about this. What if people are actually, let's say Gray, Gray's consciousness is successfully put into this golem body, the, the synth body. Instead of having a fun-loving crew, everyone's welcoming her back saying, oh my God, it's so nice to finally meet you. We've heard about you. What if there is uneasiness that someone who died has been brought back to life? Back to life. That would feed back into Tilly's issues of the purpose of all of this. Yes. What's the purpose of living <laughs> and death? And the concepts that we have about life when you could simply be brought back to life, that would be a great way to go. And it delves also not in, not just into existentialism, but rationalism, which is a part of Western philosophy, the view that regards reason as the chief source and test of knowledge, holding that reality itself has an inherently logical structure. Rationalist asserts that a class of truths exist that the intellect can grasp directly. 
And the reason I bring this up is that it could very well be a part of the embedded text, because if we are to believe that this interstellar phenomenon, the gravitational distortion defies the tenets of astrophysics, as they said. Yes. Well, that's an attack on the logical structure of reality. reality. Tilly is the most scientist of the bunch. It would make sense for her to be the one to raise these questions like she did in this episode. And suddenly now this all funnels down to the rest of the crew. That's how you, and let's say the rest of the crew isn't tormented by these thoughts. Fine. But if Tilly's at the front and center posing these questions, suddenly we, we have the most Star Trek season we've ever had. Yeah. Because especially since Tilly, as when you look at all the characters in Discovery, Tilly's the one that seems to be the heart of discovery well people have always said since day one she's also the most star trek of she's the most star trek of all the uh, of all the characters of all yeah. the characters even though she says the f word dave that's okay yeah because you know what you gotta be progressive <laughs> but, but like <laughs> i like how that's your idea of progressive drop some f-bombs drop some f-bombs it's fine <laughs> but like <laughs> but like with in regards to tilly as the character when you look at all the characters i mean mm-hmm. we've stated that who is the character that us as the audience always gravitate towards. I mean, it's hard to actually say maybe Saru close, especially after season two, we, all of us as fans and the audience gravitated towards Saru. And it's also something that we've been saying is the problem with Burnham. No one kind of (laughs) actually, you know, grows towards Burnham as with the audience, but the only other character that has been, like this, the heart for the audience yeah. is Tilly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get, I get a little frustrated myself because I see the things that are you see there. The potential. I see the potential because the writers are obviously on the right track, but I don't know if the follow through is there. Although I will say this is the most philosophical episode of star trek that we've ever been given of discover i should say philosophical discovery discovery yeah i was about to say it's not the most philosophical and it's not even that philosophical there were a few questions that were posed that could end up going down that direction if they're being smart about it exactly these are questions that should be posed about the purpose because think about it the crew would be questioning the point of a lot of these things after what they've been through, they left everything behind to save the universe only to come to a, a future that has been nearly destroyed by a baby's cry. And then <laughs> the way you say that a baby's cry. <laughs> if I was a writer in the writing room last year and someone came up with the idea, you know how like Ari Gold and Entourage walked around with a water gun <laughs> water and gun shot and people. Shot people like that. I'd be like, who, yes, came up? Yes. who just said that? <laughs> yeah. Hand me my water gun. <laughs> you get two squirts. <laughs> yeah. So the fact that they went to a future where a baby's cry destroyed the universe, nearly destroyed the universe, and then now they're coming face to face with this other monolith of of uh of an issue. These are questions that people would ask. So I think it would be smart. And I, I take that back. It would be logical, not smart. It'd be logical, logical. for them to go yeah. down that path. 
the philosophical angle would actually fix the issue I have with Quajon being destroyed. And this is something I didn't talk about last episode, Dave, because I was I didn't want to get into negative territory. And also I was waiting to see what happened. Like, was it really destroyed? And I think at this point we can say that it was definitely destroyed. It wasn't just simply taken away someplace. But the philosophical angle that I've been talking about would actually fix the issue I have with Quajon being destroyed. And the reason why I have a problem with it being destroyed in the first place is because a big part of last season, David, was about liberating the planet. For what? For what? (laughs) Yes. So the writers could just blow it up the next season? Essentially, you know, I wrote it down and I mentioned it to you off air. What Discovery did with with that planet was they did a comic book thing where they fridged the planet. They didn't just fridge a character. They fridged a planet. And and the term fridging a character in comics is basically when you introduce something and only use them to just kill them off to give motivation to a char- another character, one of your main main other characters. And comics are infamous for it. And they they've been called out on it, especially, you know, fridging female characters just to make the male superhero, you know, do something. Essentially, that's what Discovery just did with the planet. They build up this 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 whole idea of of Book's planet and his people and his relationships just to tear it away so that we could give Discovery a reason to do something. Okay, I want I want people to imagine this for a second. So forget that a year went by in reality between seasons. Okay. Chronologically, the planet being destroyed, it happened what? A few weeks? A month? So imagine if this episode came right after last season's finale and we didn't have that that year break, we would be like, wait, what the fuck? You just saved a planet and then you destroyed it. Most of you for the last 11 episodes, we're talking about liberating this planet. And then suddenly now it's just destroyed. So what was the point of liberating this planet going toe to toe with the enemy? To just blow it up the following season. It doesn't make a lot of sense unless you're looking at their true intent, which is just to sell more melodrama and it's flimsy at best. It doesn't work, but that's why I say the decisions the writers make season after season tend to call into question things that were done the previous, which is fine. And by including the philosophical, you can tackle these issues and justify these backpedaling decisions. They become relevant to the development of a story as opposed to off-putting or backpedaling. That makes the viewer ask why, because if you look at every, if I just got done binging the first three seasons. There is so much back and forth. And a lot of it has to do with the inconsistent leadership we've had in that writing room. Yeah. The first season we went through four showrunners. I don't think people realize that. Yeah, because we went through Brian Fuller, Brian Fuller, Kurtzman, and the, then the two that that were Bergman, then, wasn't it? I don't remember. Gretchen Berg and Gretchen Berg, that's and, right. And, and she had a writing partner. They then got fired, and then Kurtzman <laughs> took over. Kurtzman took over? That's 
That's your four. Then we brought Michelle Paradise in. Yes. That's five. Now Michelle Paradise is more the predominant writer, and Kurtzman has taken on more of just the executive producer role. And I think that that is something, unfortunately, now, especially with this season, me and you have been championing championing Michelle Paradise because she's done fantastic work. However, now that we have this full season with her leadership, it's now... To me, like, especially in this episode, I cannot refer to it as the writers. It's all on Michelle Paradise now. She's the leader of that room. Yeah. She's the voice. Well, that's why I'm saying, Dave, because of that inconsistency in leadership, though, and not inconsistency as in the fact that Kurtzman, you failed, and Gretchen Berg and so-and-so failed. It's not, I'm not saying they failed. I'm saying that because you bring in new leadership, you have different directions that, exactly. that these writers want to go. And that's part of the reason why we are backpedaling, it feels like, season after season, or we're regurgitating things. So if we are to use, I'm about fixing things, I'm not about just complaining, and that's what I'm trying to get to. If you use the philosophical, as I was talking about, and you have people like Tilly, and you're using writing devices like Gray to pose the philosophical, either it being existentialism, the metaphysical, or relativism, it doesn't matter. If you use that, you can string together all of the little issues for us that started in the first season that were inconsistent, and you can create more of a continuity if you pose the questions now. You can tie it all back in. Yes. You can bring true intent to the lack of leadership. We'll see what happens. Uh, let's take a look at the progression of story and character. Um, as I said, the narrative was a little wonky and repetitious. Melodramatic scenes with an emotional weight between two characters were seemingly brought to an end, only to find ourselves in a similar position a few moments later. And I'm talking about the disjointed scenes between Burnham and Saru. The initial reunion was fine. But then the two were brought together again in a very similar scene, mood, context, and not much more was actually conveyed to the audience that wasn't already communicated in the previous scene. It felt off-putting and a little out of place. The plot was also paper thin. This is how it breaks down. (laughs) Melodrama. Let's talk about the gravitational distortion. Melodrama, let's talk about the gravitational distortion. Melodrama, let's talk about the gravitational distortion and make a decision. Melodrama, ending reveal, open-ended, no episode resolution. (laughs) A lot of melodrama. That's not, that's not great. Yeah. That's not really good. And then there's also some nitpicks when it comes to the physicality of the new personal holodeck. (laughs) there's got to be limitations. I'm all about change and I'm all about new technology. We're a thousand years in the future. I want some new shit. And at first the personal holodeck in your room makes perfect sense. That's awesome. Yeah. But um, do you forget the the physics of how holograms work? (laughs) You are not transported to a surrealistic world where the objects of your room don't exist. Exactly. Saru enters the room, fine, and then they proceed to walk around the environment as if there are no chairs, chairs or tables no in Burnham's room. 
I will say, me, that was a big nitpick. Should we consider that a nitpick or should we call that a valid complaint? That's what I'm trying to say. <sighs> to David, me, it's a valid complaint. Holodecks don't. That's why holodecks have always been empty yes. in, in Star Trek. Yeah, that's the thing. And, you know, if they were to say that the technology of the future, because we have seen it, we have seen them create... You know, the desk. Remember the scene in the very beginning of uh, season? I have no problem with holographic holographic furniture. Now, let's say Burnham's entire room is made up of holographic furniture. So when she transfers over to Navarre, the furniture will change, goes away. That's fine. But I don't think they have holographic furniture. I mean, they could. Technically, in, in Star Trek now, you could have a hologram anything. You can transfer Stamets well, here's, into a holographic body that actually feels and touches. Listen, technology is great, but you got you to gotta limit yourself a bit because you create these types of issues. And here's the thing. Here's the biggest issue, Mike. I think that no one's really noticed. If they're going to say that the Discovery has this new technology, right? The Discovery itself is pretty much considered a old ship. It has old technology. So you mean to tell me that you completely changed the interior of the discovery. Well, they gave it uh, holographic nacelles last season. It, yeah. They gave it holographic it, nacelles. David, listen, when you start picking this apart, there starts to become bigger problems. That's exactly. why, that's why they have to stop with the holograms because <laughs> yeah, they got to. if you can transfer Stamets consciousness, okay. His consciousness to a hologram, <laughs> to a hologram, <laughs> and then he could be in a ship with book and essentially be there. Why are you giving Gray a synth body when you can simply construct a holographic body? Ta-da, <laughs> dude! <laughs> they have to fucking stop oh, with some yes. of this stuff. They have to pull back. Give us advancements, but you have to really think it out. Exactly. And that's why that's why I'm I'm being really critical on Michelle Paradise now because she's the one who who clears yeah, all these ideas. I, I'm a little nervous, Dave, and I've never been nervous with a season of Discovery with just two episodes in. Yes, never. never. I I've never worried about Discovery ever until the last two episodes, and I'm like, oh <laughs> shit, it's happening again. It's happening again. This time it's reversed. Yeah. So wait a minute, wait a minute. If it's in reversed, and we're worried in the beginning. Maybe the maybe by the end we're gonna say, oh my god, this was awesome. Yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just going to not be negative. I'm yeah. going to enjoy the show, but I am concerned that we're already having these type this these hologram things. They teeter into the Picard make believe type stuff. <laughs> exactly. and the biggest problem with Picard was the ridiculous technology that they use in essentially the TNG era and they have devices where you just simply make believe literally make believe, make believe. imagine that you can fix this and the device will we'll work it. how it's the power of your imagination the power of your imagination now yes discovery has not gone down that complete stupid justification <laughs> for technology and for the most part discovery does handle techno babble on par with our previous iterations of star Trek. And if you listen to the things they say and you Google them, cause I'm not a scientist, I will openly admit that I Google some of the things they say, and it does actually fit scientifically speaking, 
with grounded elements of science. So Discovery isn't just making shit up like Picard did. Yes. But that's why I say you have to be careful with with technological advancements. You you have to be careful because it it, it starts creating problems. And when when I talk about being careful, look at what Voyager did with the emitter chip for uh with for the doctor. For the doctor? It was connected to just him. And it was a device. Um, the emitter was from the future. And because of that, they couldn't duplicate it. And it was also, it also came with risk. Essentially, the doctor could die. Yes. If it were to be damaged with him using it. He would be lost. He forever. would essentially die. Yes. So there was risk attached to technological advancements. With Discovery so far and these holograms, there doesn't seem <laughs> Not, to be risk. No. And that's the sad part is like they can easily fix everything. You realize that they yes. can easily fix everything. They just need to, they need to, they need to worry a little bit about the details that they do. And I, and I don't think that's nitpicky of us. I don't think that's us being Star Trek babies. I think that's us wanting things to be thought out. Well, also basically people have to understand that while this might sound nitpicky, you're talking about Star Trek. Star Trek is infamous for the details. That's, except, except, you know, when they traveled around the sun to go back in time. That well, was, you know, that that in itself was actually a spoof. We all <laughs> we all agree that was actually a movie that was an entire spoof. Of the which time. technically, if you go by Star Trek logic, new Star Trek logic, when they traveled around the sun, they actually didn't fix their timeline. They actually created a split, split timeline, timeline and fixed another timeline. <laughs> timeline. <laughs> and then when they went back in time again, um, they actually went to a different, different timeline. Time <laughs> because, you know, Kirk and Spock just have to screw around with everything. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, Dave, this does bring us to the end. I feel like our thoughts are pretty much sprinkled throughout. So I'm not going to give any definitive final thoughts, but I will give my RMD score. And it is a 72%. Surprisingly, I'm around the same area as you. I mean, like I'm a, at a 75 for this episode. It's low comparatively to like what we've done in the past. Yeah, it's not a bad grade, but it's it is lower than it's lower than what we've given discovery, discovery in the past. In yeah. the past. I agree. So I'm hoping we have gotten through some of the messiness and now we can just focus on fleshing out the story a bit. I will say Star Trek's Star Trek Discovery, as well as Star Trek Picard, they gotta move past the the woe is me, the end of the universe stories. They do. We, they we do. have to focus on more personal stuff. I think there's something to be said about grounded villainy. Yeah. So we'll see. We're still early on. For all we know, someone is doing this, which well, I, I kind of got that at the end because you had that eye, as eye. you said, the yes. eye of Sauron. <laughs> I'm wondering if maybe that was a clue that someone is manipulating, especially since Tilly said that scientifically speaking, this shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be possible unless someone is actually controlling. Them. Yeah. So if someone is doing this, I would be very happy with and, that. And I'll get it out of the way, Mike. I'll get it out of the way. I'm not going to say it's Q. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to say. But it might be Guinan, right? <laughs> well, you never know. You never know, but you know, 
there is precedent for, you know, like higher beings out there in Star Trek that transcend this. I think it's Kess. <laughs> oh, my God. It's her in a bad mood. Oh it God. is her in a bad mood, dude. <laughs> All right. This does bring us to the end of our discussion. I do want to remind people that we are on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash Digital, you can pledge $5 or more a month. And when you do that, you gain access to our behind-the-scenes tier where we dish out pre-shows for every single one of our discussions where we kind of just shoot the shit. It's a lot like this show, but a little more casual, and we do them before every other show. They range anywhere between 10 to 20 minutes in length. Then also you get the our podcast here. And with that, you gain access to all of our full podcast episodes that we do. Um, we do discussions on books, comics, topical elements pertaining to Star Trek that we don't have time to get into sometimes on the regular show. Because they, they take up like multiple episodes. Yeah. So please help us out. It's really the only way we can make money. It keeps us on the air and it justifies us doing these shows weekly. We do need your help and support. That's patreon.com slash Digital. Thank you, and thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. I have a child. Share it with me. End simulation.